Let us pray. God, be merciful to us, for we are sinners. Indeed, we thank you, Father, for the mercy you have shown to us in Christ Jesus. He is our hope. Father, we want to see Jesus this day, that we might behold him in all his glory in our hearts, that we might believe in him, that we might show allegiance, might pledge allegiance to him with the whole of our lives, for he is our king and our savior. He is the one who brings us to you, and so it is in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the strangest things about our culture is the persistence of guilt. We live in what is supposed to be a, a totally permissive society. Traditional morality, at least outside of traditional churches, is dead. We live in a culture where there really are no rules except perhaps that one rule that everything must be tolerated. And yet, everyone still seems to feel guilty. As a culture, we don't believe in sin anymore, yet we still have guilt. We insist we are free to do what we want. We insist on autonomous freedom. And yet still, guilt plagues us. We say that judgments about right and wrong, beliefs about right and wrong, are just feelings. And that should have freed us from the feeling of guilt. But it hasn't. And indeed, we even have this nagging sense that our feelings of guilt are more than just feelings, that there really is something objectively wrong with us. Guilt is just as powerful as ever. Uh, I have talked with non-Christians on more than one occasion who would be, you could say, living a, a libertine lifestyle. Uh, they, they, they would say that there are virtually no rules about sex, but who would then go on to admit that they do feel guilty about what goes on in the bedroom. New York Times columnist David Brooks addressed this a while back in an article entitled The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Brooks wrestles in his article with our situation. He asks, how can religion be in retreat and guilt be as present as it ever has been? It seems that if religion is declining, guilt should be as well. But that's not what's happening. Brooks points out that this leaves modern Westerners in the most um, in a terrible predicament, in the worst possible position. Secularism and relativism have not freed us from a sense of guilt, and yet they offer no solution to the problem of guilt. This is how he describes it. He says, we have no clear framework or set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense they live in a loving universe Marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness, there is sin, but no formula for redemption. We know we need forgiveness. We know we need to be justified. We know we need to be affirmed. But how can you seek forgiveness when you don't even know why you need it? At some deep level, we sense the need to be justified. But people today in our culture have no idea how to find the approval and acceptance and affirmation those they so desperately crave. We want to be declared righteous, but who will judge us so? Another study was done by a couple of college professors, uh, one I think at Bowden, one at uh, Southern Miss. And they studied these feelings of guilt uh, and they studied 
uh, outrage, particularly on social media. And they found that feelings of guilt lead people to seek to justify themselves. These feelings of guilt lead people with a need to, to, to justify themselves. And people seek to do that in any, any number of ways. But one way people seek to justify themselves is by expressing moral outrage over perceived cases of injustice. If you spend any time at all on social media, all you have to do is pull up Facebook or Twitter and you're going to see this. People expressing outrage over all kinds of perceived injustices out there in the world. And in this study done by a couple of university professors, they found that most of the time when people express moral outrage over some issue that does not impact them personally, their reason for expressing outrage is not empathy towards the victims of the injustice, but an attempt, and here I want to quote them, an attempt to, quote, assuage feelings of culpability, feelings of guilt, and to reinforce to others one's own status as a very good person. In other words, so much of that rage you see on social media is not because people are really passionate about social justice, but because they are so passionately committed to self-justification. And this is their way of dealing with their feelings of guilt. This is their way of seeking to justify themselves by showing selective outrage against certain perceived injustices. Their rage is not guided by or driven by altruism, but by a desire to justify the self in the eyes of others, to prove to others by my moral outrage, my anger over these injustices, to prove to others that I really am a good person. This outrage we see so often on social media is really a form of virtue signaling that aims to prove I am righteous. What do we do with our feelings of guilt? What do we do with our need to be forgiven, our need to be justified, our need to be affirmed and declared righteous, our need for somebody to pass a favorable judgment over us? Well, perhaps we should go to the expert on guilt. Uh, Martin Luther was certainly something of an expert in guilt. Uh, as a monk in 16th century Germany, uh, he felt guilty about absolutely everything. He felt guilt over the bad things he had done, but he also felt guilt over the good things he had done, that they weren't good enough, or that perhaps he had taken a, a smidgen of pride in something good he had done. He was stuck on a treadmill of endlessly trying to confess his sins and get cleansing. What he wanted was to be justified, something that would make the feelings of guilt go away, something that could comfort his conscience. Now, of course, in Luther's day, the guilt he felt was easy to understand because the requirements of God's law were well understood in his culture. So it's very easy to see. Here's the standard. Nobody measures up. That gap is where guilt comes from. But the solution to those guilt pangs was not well understood in the 16th century in Europe until Luther rediscovered the Bible's teaching on justification by faith which is God's answer to our feelings of guilt. Luther rediscovered this message that God declares us righteous by faith. Not by works that we do, but by faith in His Son. And this message Luther proclaimed set people free 
from unhealthy ways of trying to deal with their guilt by justifying themselves, Luther made it very clear. Justification is not achieved, it is received. It's not an achievement, it's a gift. It's not something we do on our own. It's a status that God freely bestows upon us through His Son when we close with His Son in faith. And we need to make the same discovery in our own day or proclaim this same discovery in our own day to our culture. And I think this story here in Luke 18 can help us do it. Jesus tells a story in Luke 18 about two ways of dealing with guilt, two ways of, uh, of seeking to be justified, one which works and one which doesn't. Luke introduces this parable by telling us that Jesus spoke this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who despised others. Now, we're going to see, we're going to look at this parable this week and then we'll come back and look at it again next week. We're going to see that self-justification, seeking to justify yourself and despising others go together. And in the same way, we'll see justification by faith and embracing others in love and in community go together as well. Self-justification and contempt for others go together. Luke uh, opens the story by telling us that. And he tells us, too, that, that Jesus told this story to those who were trusting in themselves and despising others. Jesus doesn't just talk about the self-justifiers, the self-righteous. He speaks to them about their self-righteousness face-to-face. -face. And I think that's a good model for us. Don't just talk about people's faults behind their backs. Don't talk about people's faults. Talk to them about their faults. And that's what Jesus does here. He looks them in the eye and lovingly tells them the problem through this story. He is evangelizing them. He's telling them a story that will expose the bankruptcy of their attempts to justify themselves and show them that they're wrong to despise others. He's going to expose their hypocrisy and he's going to point them to the answer. So what's the story? Well, it begins with two men going to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. It must have been the appointed time for prayer, a time of, of sacrifice and prayer at the temple. Two different kinds of men show up, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Obviously, the Pharisee, if we know anything else about Luke's gospel, we know that the Pharisees are those Jesus is speaking to here. They're the self-justifiers. They're the self-righteous who despise others like the tax collector. But we need to remember how this would have sounded in context. Luke hadn't written his gospel when Jesus was telling this story, obviously. And so the Pharisees would still have been regarded as heroes within their community. They were the religious leaders in their community, and they were highly respected. Uh, you know how sometimes we have surveys. Occasionally you'll see these surveys come out that talk about who is the most respected group in society, which professions, for example, are most admired in society. And in our day, it's usually the doctors and the scientists and the firefighters and teachers and nurses that are right at the top of the list. These are the, the most admired groups, the most admired professions. Well, in first century Israel, if they had done a most admired survey, the Pharisees would have come out on top. There's no question about that. They were the most prestigious group, the most esteemed group. They were the role models for everybody. They were powerful. They were influential. They were highly thought of. They were well-educated, well-connected. They were the most religiously devoted, the most serious in their commitment to God, it seemed, and the most spiritual. 
Meanwhile, of course, tax collectors would have been at the bottom of the list. Everybody would have looked down on a tax collector. I mean, even the extortioner or adulterer would have said, well, at least I'm not a tax collector. <laughs> I mean, there's always somebody worse, right? Well, the tax collector's at the very bottom of the social ladder. And this is true because in Israel, the tax collectors were regarded as traitors, traitors to their country and even traitors to God. You want to talk about a corrupt system of taxation. We all like to complain about taxes, uh, I know. But you want to talk about taxation without representation. This is it. The whole system of taxation as it existed in ancient Rome was utterly corrupt. These tax collectors were basically turncoats. They were Jews who were now aiding and abetting the Romans, the occupying force. Tax collectors were actually raising money for Caesar and for Caesar's troops. They were raising money so that Caesar could keep his troops stationed there in Israel. A constant reminder to the Israelites, you're not your own people. You're under Caesar's lordship, Caesar's reign. There was nothing more offensive. The tax collector was the representative of Caesar in Rome right there close to home. A constant reminder of everything that is wrong with the world. And the way the system would work is Caesar would have his required amount, his administration would say, all right, this is the tax revenue we want from this region. And then the tax collectors would go around and they could collect as much as they wanted, as much as they could squeeze out of people. And then they would give to Caesar what the administration had required and they would keep the rest for themselves. And so they were constantly skimming off as much from everyone else as they could. And everybody knew this. You, you see the tax collector buying a new mansion. And you think, well, he's doing that with my money. That's money he took from me for no good reason. It's just not fair. They were despised by everyone. See, tax collectors were, were disliked, but they also happened to be very wealthy, and that was the attraction. While tax collectors were usually lowly regarded, they were highly rich. And so in the eyes of, of the tax collectors, I suppose, their bank accounts made up for what they lost in social respectability. Well, we find these two men coming into the temple, the Pharisee and the tax collector. They couldn't be further apart. They're as far apart on the, the, the social, religious spectrum as you can get. And we're told in the story, as Jesus uh, unfolds it, that the Pharisee stood off by himself. That is, he, that's actually what the word Pharisee means. It means to be a separatist, to, to separate yourself. He separates himself from the rest of the people in the temple. As if to communicate by his spatial positioning and his bodily posture that he thinks he's pretty special. Uh, he doesn't want to associate too closely with the others who are there because he's clearly better than they are. He's a cut above everyone else. And Jesus tells us he stood and he prayed. Now in those days people did not pray or for that matter read aloud. Uh, no, I'm sorry, people did not, did not pray or even read silently. These things would always happen aloud. If you were reading something, you'd read it out loud. If you were praying, you would pray out loud. And so he's speaking these words out as he, as he prays. And so others are able to overhear uh, his conversation with God. And how does his prayer go? He says, God, I thank you. I am not like other men. And then he lists all the categories of men he knows he is superior to. Extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector who's at the temple at the same time, but who obviously doesn't belong there. The temple's not a place for tax collectors. It's not a place for sinners like that. Clearly, that's the way the Pharisee is thinking. 
He lists the categories of people he's better than. Then he lists his accomplishments. It's sort of his moral resume. He says, I fast twice a week. This would seem to be a work of super erogation, you could say. A work that goes above and beyond what is required. Above and beyond what the law or the Torah commanded. Uh, Actually, if you look at the Torah, there's only one fast day per year. So one fast day per year in the Torah, but this Pharisee's fasting twice a week. He's doing over a hundred times the prescribed number of annual fasts. That's how great he is. He's scrupulous in his tithing. How many people could say something like this? And again, there may be a hint of super irrigation here, depending on how you read this. The law says that the tithe is off of your increase. It's 10% of your increases to be given to God, to God's work. But this man says he tithes on all that he possesses, apparently not just tithing off of his periodic increases, but off of his capital. Again, going above and beyond what the law requires. Really, what is the essence of his prayer? Certainly he pays lip service to God's grace. He does thank God. But the heart of his prayer is self-commendation. The prayer is not a celebration of God's grace. It's a celebration of his achievements. It's not, oh God, how great are all your wondrous works. It's how great I am. And all my marvelous works. It's like he's saying in his prayer, congratulations, God. Uh, You really got lucky when you got me on your side. You're really lucky to have me. I mean, he thanks God, but it's really clear from the prayer. He thinks God ought to be thanking him. He's smug. He's arrogant. He's self-satisfied. And it's all cloaked in very religious sounding language, religious dress. He's dressed up his self-righteousness in religiosity. Of course, we know that the Pharisees were frauds. All throughout the Gospels, that's what Jesus is continually doing, exposing their hypocrisy, showing that they're posers, that they're fakes. They're not what they claim to be. This prayer on the part of the Pharisees is really a great example of humble bragging. You know, you heard about that, the the humble brag. That's another uh, social media thing. Um, You know, you want to sound like you're being modest when really you're just drawing attention to yourself. And that's what the Pharisee is doing here. He sounds so humble in his opening line, thanking God. He gets off to a good start, but he immediately then launches into how great he is. This is not what God wants. It's clear evidence the Pharisee is trusting in himself. He's seeking to justify himself. He thinks he's the model. He thinks he is what everyone should be. But the reality is he is the exact opposite of what God wants. Now before we we go any further bashing the Pharisee, I just want to point out to you that while we're all aware of this sin, and we would all want to renounce this kind of self-righteousness, We need to be aware of the fact that religious communities are always prone to this very kind of thing. And this very kind of self-righteousness can easily creep in. And often will creep in in places where we're not really thinking about it. We're thinking, well, I'm just, you know, my opinion on this is right. Theirs is wrong. And so that's it. And that settles it. And then you start, next thing you know, you're looking down on people who have a different view than you do on this or that issue. And you don't realize how suddenly you're starting to thank yourself you're not like that other person. You're starting to thank God you're not like that other person. And you're looking down on that other person, even despising them, holding them in contempt for having a different view or a different practice in some area. 
The question here really is, how do you view those who are not as righteous as yourself, who aren't as smart as you, don't have the same theological insights as you, perhaps have made a bigger mess out of their lives than you've made? How do you view those people? That's really the issue here. And also, while again, we would say none of us want to fall into this trap of self-righteousness, one thing we do need to recognize is that for people who are outside of the church, they tend to think that all church people are like the Pharisee. Smug, self-satisfied in their religiosity, humble bragging, that kind of, that's how we're perceived. And again, it's something we need to be aware of. And I think this story helps us understand what to do about it. Well, what about the tax collector? The tax collector stands alone like the Pharisee, but for the opposite reason. He stands alone because he knows he's unworthy. He knows he doesn't belong there. He knows he really shouldn't have access to God's temple. He really has no right to draw near to God. He won't even look up. You know, the Pharisee looks up to heaven. He won't even look up to heaven. Instead, he looks down in humility. And he beats his chest. As if to say, I know what's really wrong with me. I know that my problem is really inside me. It's in my heart. I can't blame anybody else. It's, it's in here. This is the problem. It's my own heart is corrupt. And his prayer is entirely different. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those words, God, be merciful to me, those are words basically that come from the opening line of Psalm 51. You know what Psalm 51 is, right? It is David's song of repentance after he slept with Bathsheba, after he had committed adultery, and, and then he's been, he's been caught in his sin. And now in brokenness and in contrition, he turns to God and he begs for mercy. And so this tax collector puts the words of David in Psalm 51 on his lips and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But that translation, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that leaves out a couple of key details that I want to draw out of this for you. Most English translations don't capture this. What he actually says is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He uses the definite article to describe himself. He says, I am the sinner. It's a lot like Paul, the apostle, when he says he is the chief of sinners in 2 Timothy. It's, it's not that Paul was really a greater sinner than anybody else. It's that he was more deeply acquainted with his own sin than anyone else's. And so it seemed that way. And that's how it is with the tax collector. I know one pastor who put it this way. He said, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. You should feel like the biggest sinner you know because you know your sins better than you know anybody else's. And that's what we see with the tax collector here. He says, I am the sinner. As if to say, I am the chief of sinners. But there's something else interesting here. The word that he uses for mercy is not the usual word. Uh, it's actually a very complex term. And the same root word gets translated different ways when it shows up in different places in the New Testament. In some contexts, it seems to refer to the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. It's the place where the high priest would go in, meeting with God on the Day of Atonement. And so it's a term connected with sacrifice, with blood, with God's wrath being turned away. It's that place where the blood was put for the cleansing of the people. The same root term is used elsewhere in passages like Romans chapter 3 
where Paul says that God set forth Christ as a propitiation. That's how it's usually translated there. A propitiation by His blood. And propitiation there just means a sacrifice that turns aside wrath, that averts wrath. The same root term is also used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, which says Christ was made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation. See, there's the term again. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To cover their sins. To secure for them forgiveness. To rescue them from the wrath they deserve. See, this is a term that comes from the temple sacrificial system. It means to propitiate wrath. To turn aside wrath through a sacrifice. It means to turn away the just wrath of God by making atonement, by making a covering for sin. You know, you hear about all the uh, pagan religions, how they would have sacrifices, a lot of times even human sacrifice. What are they trying to do? They're trying to propitiate their gods. They're trying to turn aside the anger of the gods. If there's a long drought, well, perhaps we need to sacrifice a few more people. They're trying to turn aside the anger of the gods. Okay? Well, there's only one place where propitiation is really made, and this is it. This is it, the, the sacrifice in view here. But this helps us understand what the tax collector is asking for. This is, this is how his prayer goes. This is what he's praying for. He wants God to show him the sinner, mercy, by providing a sacrifice to take his place and absorb the wrath his sin deserves. You see that? That's really what his prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it really means. God, show me mercy. Show me the sinner mercy by providing a sacrifice to be my substitute and to take the punishment, the wrath that I deserve. So we all feel this need to be justified and we may try to cover our sins with fig leaves, you know, with lies and rationalizations. Or we will look to God's sacrifice, His own provision to cover us. The tax collector, the publican, makes this prayer. What is the answer to the publican's prayer? Well, remember, they're in the temple. This is the time of prayer. It's probably time for either the morning or the evening sacrifice to be offered. The answer to his prayer, in one sense, is right there on the altar. Because the temple is the place of sacrifice. These animal sacrifices, the, the blood that's being shed there. The tax collector in his prayer is saying, yes, I need a sacrifice. Just like that animal being sacrificed right in front of me right now. I need a sacrifice that can really take away my sin. And of course, we know the real answer to his prayer is going to be found in the reality that those animal sacrifices in the temple, temple can only symbolize and point to the real answer to his prayer is found in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The cross is the true altar, the true mercy seat. The cross is the true place of mercy, the true place of propitiation. This man prays for mercy. God answers with the cross. This man prays for mercy. 
God answers his prayer by sacrificing his son. He knows he needs a sacrifice to cover his sins. God provides Christ's death, a substitutionary sacrificial offering. He knows he needs, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the bleeding charity of God. And so God will bleed and die for him on the cross. He knows he needs propitiation. He needs God's wrath to be turned away from him. And so God absorbs his own wrath at the cross. He knows he's naked and ashamed. He's guilty and in need of covering. He's like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 after they sinned. There God slaughtered an animal and covered Adam and Eve with the skins. Here we see God's going to slaughter His own Son to cover and clothe this man. He's going to be covered with Christ Jesus Himself, the Righteous One. God will not spare His own Son so that this tax collector might be spared. This tax collector knows he needs to be cleansed. God will cleanse him with His own blood shed at Golgotha. The blood of Jesus. The only sacrifice that really cleanses. Jesus' blood is the only detergent that can really get the guilt stains, the sin stains, out. See, the difference between the Pharisee and the publican goes as deep as it can get. It's a difference, really, I think you see playing out with Cain and Abel. It's a difference that really goes all the way back to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. We read it this morning. Remember how the brothers Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to the gate at Eden. It was the appointed time for sacrifice, the appointed time for worship. And you have Cain who tilled the ground and Abel who raised sheep. And they come to worship at the gate of Eden at the appointed time. Now Cain and Abel would have learned from their parents' experience that sinners can only approach God through the shedding of blood because that's what happened in Genesis 3. Blood was shed. But what does Cain do? Cain brings a grain offering. Cain offers to God the works of his hands without any blood covering. He simply offers to God the works of his hands, the the grain offering and his offering is rejected. Abel offers a blood sacrifice because he he knows he deserves death. He knows he needs cleansing. He knows his life is forfeit and he needs a substitute to die in his place. And what's the result? While Cain's offering is rejected, Abel's is accepted. And then in a jealous rage, Cain ends up shedding blood anyway by murdering his brother. What a tragedy. If only Cain had let Abel offer his blood sacrifice first and then made his grain sacrifice, his grain offering, then it would have been acceptable because blood would have proceeded. But no, he said, I'm the firstborn. I must sacrifice first, even if it means making an offering without blood. The Pharisee is like Cain. Offering God the works of his hands without acknowledging first that he needs to be cleansed through a blood sacrifice. The tax collector is like Abel. He pleads for mercy to be given to him through a blood sacrifice. And of course, ultimately, that sacrifice is Jesus himself. Jesus is the mercy of God cry out for mercy, God's answer is Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God's mercy. He is God's way of working in love to turn away His own just wrath against sinners. 
through the death of Jesus, God is just and the justifier of sinners who trust in Him. Amazingly, it is the tax collector rather than the Pharisee, the religious professional, who discerns the true meaning of the temple rituals and who thus gets the gospel right and who therefore goes home justified. The Pharisee is too busy congratulating himself to grasp what's happening on the altar right in front of him in the temple. He misses what it's all about. And then we get Jesus' commentary on the story told in verse 14. It says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home justified, not the other man, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One man trusts in his own righteousness, the other man in God's mercy. One man is condemned, the other is justified. Jesus describes the status of the tax collector as justified. We're going to talk about this more next week, but that was certainly the key word in the 16th century Reformation, the key doctrine that ultimately divided the church, the doctrine of justification. The core of the Reformation was a recovery of justification. Justification by faith. What does it mean to be justified well, the Reformers were exactly right to see it as a legal term or a law court term. It is forensic. It is a declaration God makes over you that you are in the right. It's God passing judgment in your favor, saying you are righteous and you are therefore accepted by me. This was the great reformational breakthrough. Luther challenged the prevailing view in his own day that saw justification as a process of being made progressively more and more righteous until finally you become perfectly righteous and then God can accept you, but not before then. And see, on that view, no one can ever be justified in this life and that's why the process had to continue past death into purgatory. Luther pointed to passages like this one in Luke 18 and said, no, justification is not a process. And it's not just that God justifies the righteous. No, justification is an event. And God can justify sinners. God doesn't wait until we're perfect to justify us. He can justify us right now, even though we are still sinners. God accepts us as we are through His Son. That's why Jesus died, that we might be accepted as we are right now. God loves us just as we are. He welcomes us just as we are. He invites us into His family and to His table right now just as we are. And He does so by faith. Because by faith in Christ and in Christ's sacrifice, we are united to Christ and all His benefits are given to us. When we put our trust in Christ, Christ shares with us all that is His. All of His benefits, all of His privileges flow to us. And so just as Jesus is in a right relationship with God, so when we trust in Jesus, we're united to Him. We now stand in a right relationship with God as well. It's interesting actually that Jesus does not mention this man's faith. Here. Instead, what he really talks about is his humility, how he humbled himself. You've got the self-exalting Pharisee and the self-abasing tax collector. Jesus comments on his humility. Now, I don't think that means that justification is by humility, uh, as if you could just substitute 
humility for faith. But I think what Jesus is showing us here is the kind of faith that justifies is a humble faith, a dependent faith. This man humbled himself, and this humility is the manifestation and outworking of his faith. Justification by faith alone, in that sense, is really, you could say, justification by humility alone. Because when we humble ourselves in this way, we're giving up all attempts at self-justification. We're abandoning all attempts at self-justification. And that's really the point here. The man looks away from himself. He despairs of himself. And he clings to God's mercy in Christ as his only hope. He's not self-reliant. He's certainly not self-exalting. He humbly banks everything on God's mercy. All his hopes are pinned on Christ. All his hopes are pinned on God providing a sacrifice that will turn away the wrath that he knows he justly deserves. The publican trusts in God's promise and it is counted to him as righteousness. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, Christ, who is grasped by faith and who lives in the heart, is the true righteousness on account of which God counts us as righteous. Luther said, Christ lives in me, and thus His righteousness and salvation are mine as well. This is what it means to be justified. Christ is the just one. And when we are united to Him so that we're in Christ and He's in us, Christ is our righteousness. We share in His very status. His righteous status is now shared with us. Because we know this story well, it's easy for us to take a story like this for granted and and to not think a whole lot about it. But this is a story that would have had incredible shock value in its original context. It's stories like this, quite frankly, that got Jesus crucified. Because it turned everything people thought they knew about the kingdom of God, like who's going to be in and who's going to be out, upside down. It turned upside down everything people thought they knew about justification, about who would be declared righteous. The story is a wonderful illustration of that old gospel proverb, hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven, and heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. This story is completely unexpected. Because generally speaking, our default is to think that God must be a moralist. The great moralist in the sky. The great scorekeeper in the sky. And he must use a kind of moral calculus, weighing our good deeds against our bad deeds and deciding who he will accept. And this story completely blows that away. Because here, God declares the unrighteous righteous. God declares the unrighteous righteous when he trusts in God's mercy. And those who seem to be righteous are actually rejected as unrighteous, as condemned when they refuse to acknowledge their need for mercy. God judges favorably all those who rely on his mercy and who call out for mercy. Curialism is the tax collector's prayer, the publican's prayer. It must be our prayer as well. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. That is the prayer of the justified. Or as the hymn puts it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the hope 
of the justified. What is the hope of, ju- uh, of sinners? How might we be justified? How can our feelings of guilt be dealt with? One way. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. That is our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your mercy to us shown in Christ Jesus. We thank You for His death on the cross. We thank You for His resurrection. That even as You justified Your Son, You have justified us in Him. Father, we know we're sinners in need of mercy. Show us Your mercy in Christ. Father, help us to be assured of Your love, Your acceptance. Help us to know Your affirmation and Your delight in us. That You truly do rejoice in us with songs of rejoicing. That You delight in us and over us. Because we are in Christ Jesus, Your Son. We pray this in His name. Amen.